In his classic book, Worship the Missing Jewel, A.W. Tozer writes, The purpose of God in sending His Son to die and live and be at the right hand of God the Father was that He might restore to us the missing jewel, the jewel of worship. That we might come back and learn to do again that which we were created to do in the first place. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness to spend our time in awesome wonder and adoration of God. Feeling it and expressing it and letting it get into our labors and doing nothing except as an act of worship to Almighty God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Borrowing Tozer's title, Worship the Missing Jewel, today, I'd like for us to spend some time together rediscovering this missing jewel, revisiting what the Bible has to say about this all-important subject of worship. In fact, look at what Jesus Himself said, John 4, verses 23 and 24. Let's read this out loud together. It is who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before Him in their worship. Those who worship Him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. Don't miss that phrase. That's the kind of people the Father is out looking for. (laughs) I mean, what an awesome thought. God is out looking for people who will worship Him. I want to be one of those people. Don't you? Well, if we're going to be one of those people, if we're going to rediscover, worship the missing jewel, if we're going to be the kind of true worshipers the Father is out looking for, both individually and congregationally, then it's essential that we understand what the Bible teaches about worship. After all, it's not what we like or dislike. It's not our own personal preferences in worship that are the most important. Rather, it's what God likes and dislikes. It's His personal preferences in worship that matter the most. And so the Bible must be our guide in the study and practice of worship. Worship, the missing jewel. Let's consider what the Bible teaches about worship under these five major headings today. The first is the prelude to worship. Before we can ever begin to be the worshipers that God is out looking for, it's important for us to understand exactly what true worship is and is not. Every time I teach on the subject of worship, I start with the definition. Because you see, there are a number of popular erroneous ideas about worship circulating among Christians and churches today. And many of them have an element of truth in them, and yet they are incomplete. For instance, there's what I call the church service misunderstanding. That worship is something we do only at 10.45 a.m. on Sunday morning 
in church or whatever day or time we gather together in the church facilities as the church, that this is the only place where worship actually takes place. Now, again, there's an element of truth in that. I would hope that when we gather together, we worship. But worship is so much bigger than this gathering. Then there's the proper form misunderstanding. That that worship is merely form or ritual, often called the liturgy. You sing the right songs, you stand up and sit down in the right places, you recite the right prayers, you read the right scriptures, and you have worship. You have gone through the form, the rites, the rituals of worship, and we think that that in itself is worship. Now again, I hope that our worship always has form and order to it. And that we, in fact, worship in that form. But that is not all that worship is. Then there's the personal benefit misunderstanding. That worship is all about me. (laughs) It's what I like and what I dislike. It's what I get out of it. What's in it for me? And in fact, we betray our misunderstanding of worship when we walk out the door and we say, I liked that worship service or I didn't like that worship service. Because it's not about us. It's about Him and what He likes and what He dislikes. That's what matters most. Now again, we do receive personal benefit when we worship, do we not? We are blessed by the times when we worship. But worship is so much bigger than that. And then there's what I call the praise singing misunderstanding. The praise singing, this is a big one in our world today, that that worship is just music. Worship is synonymous with praise. There's so much going on in contemporary Christian music today. In fact, contemporary Christian music is wonderful. There are some incredible songs written today to to inspire us to worship the Lord and in fact uh, uh, they they alongside of the heritage of the hymns that we love so much these songs are powerful worship songs but worship is so much more than just praise and singing and music well then what exactly is worship In his book, Worship, the Christian's Highest Occupation, A.P. Gibbs writes, The term worship, like many other great words such as grace and love, defies adequate definition. The meaning of these words, like the exquisite perfume of a rose or the delightful flavor of honey, is more easily experienced than described. Now that's true, but... Let's give it our best shot, shall we, this morning? I looked up the word worship in the dictionary, and this is what I found. The adoration, homage, or veneration given to a deity or to something regarded as sacred. It's excessive or ardent devotion or admiration for something. Actually, the the best way, I think, to understand it is from its etymology. The word worship comes to us from the word worth-ship. Because you see, worship is always tied to the worth of God. Revelation 4 and verse 11 captures the essence of God's Word. In fact, let's read this out loud together. 
You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. It's tied to the worthiness of God. Now it's interesting, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that's most commonly used for worship describes a dog's loyalty to its master. No, those of us that are dog owners, sorry cat owners, those of us that are dog owners understand this because we've all looked into the eyes of our little dog who is looking up at us with ah, awe and reverence and adoration, loyalty and devotion. And it's interesting that that word in its roots really is a word that describes how we respond to God. How we look at God, if you will. In the New Testament, the Greek word that's most commonly used for worship describes a subject's homage to his or her ruler, such as a Roman citizen's reverence for the emperor, as it would be in the New Testament. It's the picture, actually, of bowing down before the master, before the cross, before the king. It's the picture of kissing the hand as you bow before the king. In fact, it's actually the picture of falling face down. As we would do, I suppose, if Jesus in fact walked in here this morning. In his book, Real Worship, Warren Wiersbe summarizes, when you consider all of the words used for worship in both the Old and New Testaments, when you put the meanings together, you find that worship involves both Attitudes, awe, reverence, and respect, and actions, bowing, praising, serving. True worship is balanced and involves the mind, the emotions, and the will. It must be intelligent, it must reach deep within and be motivated by love, and it must lead to obedient actions that glorify God. Now with those definitions in mind then... Let's move on to the priority of worship. So why should we be so concerned about worship? Well, earlier we sang that song. There is no higher calling, no greater honor than to bow and kneel before your throne. I'm amazed at your glory, embraced by your mercy. Oh Lord, I live to worship you. Oh Lord, I live to worship you. Simply put, there is nothing, absolutely nothing more important than worshiping God. As we already pointed out in John chapter 4, God is out looking for people who will worship Him. He is longing for and searching for true worshipers. Now the priority of worship is illustrated again and again from cover to cover in the Bible. From the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation. For example, it all starts with the example of the patriarchs. 
gathered around that family altar. We read of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the others who gathered their families around that central point, that altar where an animal was sacrificed and, and the worship that happened to Jehovah God around that patriarchal altar. Then there's the exhortation of the commandments. It's no accident, I think, that the first and the second commandments of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verses 3 through 6, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourselves an idol, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. The first two commandments have to do with worship. God is saying, I'm going to take second place to nothing, no one. I must be first in your worship. Then there was the establishment of the tabernacle. Remember that portable tent of worship that the God had gave instructions for the Israelite nation to build as they were making their trek from Egypt to the promised land. And, and as they encamped around that tabernacle, perhaps the greatest illustration of how God was to be at the very center of their very existence. And they camped around that and they looked at the Shekinah glory of God, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, God's presence at the Ark of the Covenant in the very center of that tabernacle. They looked, they camped even at as God is the center of everything they were as a people. Then there is the emphasis of the Psalms. <laughs> Can't read the Psalms without finding worship. <laughs> Especially those later Psalms are all about worship. Every expression of worship possible you can think of is found in the Psalms as, as worship rises up to God the Creator. Then there's the experience of the prophets. As many times the word of the Lord came to the prophet during a time of worship. A great example of that would be Isaiah 6 where it says that that Isaiah received this vision of of God on his throne. The train of his robe filled the temple and God, God called Isaiah in that moment to become a prophet for him. Then we come to the New Testament, to the enforcement of Jesus. We read those two verses earlier from John chapter 4. God is out looking, Jesus says, for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Then there's the evidence of the early church gathered together to worship in the book of Acts again and again. We see examples of their times of worship. Then there's the encouragement of the letters, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, for instance, where Paul gives very specific instructions about the propriety of worship. And we end up then with the events of Revelation. And we get this little peek behind the veil into heaven. And what do we find is happening in heaven? Worship. (laughs) Again and again, they are worshiping God together, falling down on their faces before the very throne of God. There were even beings that were created, Revelation tells us, that all they do 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even though time doesn't exist up there, we understand, but they worship continually without stopping. And so worship is the ultimate priority, the highest calling for which God created us. That's clear from Genesis through the book of Revelation in the Bible. God designed us so that of our own free will, we would choose to worship Him. And then we sinned. 
And we shattered our relationship with God. So what did God do? He sent Jesus to redeem us and to reconcile us back to Himself. Why? So that we would have the choice once again to worship Him. Here's a key principle to remember. Write it down in your notes. We were born, then born again to worship. We were born, then born again to worship. Again, A.W. Tozer writes that he might restore to us the missing jewel, the jewel of worship, that we might come back and learn to do again that which we were created to do in the first place. Worship the Lord. Again, we were born and then born again to worship God. That's the number one priority in our lives. Which brings us to the program for worship. Now, although I hope we understand that worship is not just what we do together congregationally on Sunday mornings, it is in fact a full lifestyle, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. But it is certainly our goal that our time together each Sunday will be a worship-filled experience from beginning to end. So let me just take a moment to talk specifically about public or corporate worship. Some people are surprised to learn that the Bible does not prescribe any detailed pattern or any set ritual, any exact order of congregational worship. Actually, we're only shown brief glimpses of worship in the early church. Very little is given to us by command or by example to indicate the program to be followed when we assemble together on Sundays to worship. However, from these snippets, coupled with some writings given to us by early church historians, we can identify at least six components which were a part of public or corporate worship in the New Testament church. Let me just give them to you. You can write them down. The first is teaching. What we're doing right now. (laughs) Teaching. The Word of God. Many scriptures, Acts 2.42 for example, indicate that the early believers spent much of their time together in worship being taught from the Bible. Secondly, communing. Communing. Acts 20 verse 7 indicates that the early church was in the habit of meeting together on Sundays to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a central part of their worship. And then giving. 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 and 2 suggests that the giving of tithes and offerings was a very critical part of the worship experience of the early church. Then there's reading. 1 Timothy 4 verse 13 tells us the public reading of Scripture was to be done when the church gathered together for worship. And of course, they're singing. (laughs) Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16. Just a couple of verses to show us the importance of music in corporate worship. And finally, there's praying. James 5 speaks of praying for the sick, the confessing of sins, the sharing of praises with one another. All prayer as a part of public worship. Teaching, communing, 
Giving, reading, singing, praying. Those are six things we know for certain were a part of congregational worship of the early church. Perhaps there were many others. But again, I want to emphasize that the Bible does not prescribe any detailed pattern or any set ritual or any exact order, if you will, of corporate worship. (laughs) Which is why Mark messes with it once in a while. Ah, that was a rabbit trail. Our worship is to be orderly, and yet it is to be spontaneous and free. We should never be bound by some kind of set program for our worship. In fact, I often pray, I want you to know this, on Sunday mornings before uh, we meet together, one of my prayers every single Sunday is, God, let something happen that isn't on the order of worship. God, would you show up in some way today that wasn't because we wrote it down for it to happen? Now, all of that leads us to the practices in worship. Public corporate worship is meant to be active, not passive. We're to be participants, not spectators. And so, how then are we to worship God together? What's to be the manner of our worship? In what appropriate God-pleasing ways is our worship to be expressed? In their book, Worship Rediscovering the Missing Jewel, co-authors Ronald Allen and Gordon Moore write, For worshipers in many churches today, there are few opportunities for any physical bodily action in worship except for sitting and observing. But what about physical action in worship? Does custom dictate action? Or are there biblical principles that can guide us with clarity and authority in making our decisions in this area? And the answer, of course, is yes. When it comes to the practices in worship, the actions through which you and I express our worship to God in a way that pleases Him, the Bible is quite clear. Perhaps one of the most interesting biblical descriptions of public worship is found here in Nehemiah chapter 8. I asked you to turn there earlier. We're going to get to that now. Nehemiah chapter 8. Follow along as I read. Israel gathered together back in Jerusalem after captivity and they are holding a public corporate worship time. And look at what it says here. Verse 5. Ezra, the scribe, opened the book. What book? The Bible. Okay, they had it at that time. the, the, The Old Testament law. He opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. What's that say? Well, that tells they, he was on a stage, okay? He was on a, a platform, a podium, if you will, where he could see all the people to address them. And as he opened it, the book of the law, the word of God, the people all stood up in reverence for God's word. Verse 6, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
Now from that passage and many, 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 many others throughout the Bible, here are some physical expressions of worship that God Himself desires from us. These are some practices in worship that the Bible actually instructs us to follow. First, we ought to worship Him with our mouths. We ought to worship Him with our mouths, saying Amen, amen, like they said here in the Scripture. Amen? amen. Oh, that was not very good. Amen? amen? Okay, we ought to have more of that. I love it when people say amen. And, and they are engaged in the worship that we are sharing together. Then there's the singing, of course. doesn't say you have to sing on tune anywhere in Scripture. <laughs> It just says sing. You sing from your heart. You just give it all you've got. You, you, you sing. Yes, even new songs you may not know. You give it your best effort because in the words and in the expression of that singing, you're worshiping God. Praising Him. Lifting up His attributes. And God, You are a holy God. You are a majestic God. You are a God who is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. It's praising Him. It's shouting. Oh, we don't do that in church. <laughs> We ought to. Amen. <laughs> you ever been to a sports event and, and you listen to the roar of the crowd? That's the word here. That's exactly what this word is. It's not just, you know, you're shouting, but it's the roar. It's the combined roar of the crowd, you know, as something's happening on the field. Well, something's happening right here with God, and we are to shout and roar. Our praise to the Lord. And then there's blessing. Giving God blessing. That's simply just simply uh, as we do with our, our kids when we extend that blessing to them. We're extending that blessing to God and acknowledging that He alone is worthy. So with our mouths. Secondly, with our hands. <laughs> with our hands. By the way, your hands are an extension of your heart. I think it's important for us to understand that. Your hands are an extension of your real self. It's kind of hard to talk without your hands. <laughs> Some of us more than others. But in fact, the hands are connected to the heart. The hands are an expression of who we really are. So what are some proper expressions of worship with our hands? Clapping. Not just to the beat of the music, although I think that's certainly appropriate. But did you know that clapping, do you know that this is actually in sign language? Praise. Did you know that they used to clap to drown out the enemy's voice? Oh, there's a thought for you. And when we go like this sometimes when we're clapping here in church, God is going, let it go. Come on. You know, let's learn how to clap. Let's drown out the devil's voice. Let's tell him he doesn't have a say here. Only God does. And then there's the playing of an instrument. We have several of us doing that now. Some that are learning to do that. And will soon be playing, I hope, in worship services. Some of our kids. There's the lifting of our hands. 
Uh, now we're really getting uncomfortable. Did you know there's several ways of lifting your hands, by the way? The Bible talks about different ways. There's the lifting of your hands in full surrender. Stick them up. You know what that says? It says, I got no weapons. I am fully surrendered to you. Come out with your hands up. That, we ought to put that phrase up before we worship on Sunday morning. Come out with your hands up in full surrender. There's also, with palms up, the extending of blessing. Again, like we do with our kids when we pray for them, we extend that blessing to God with our hands raised to Him. Sometimes our hands go like this, where we are on kind of the receiving end, and we are saying, God, I need You right now. I'm empty, and I need to be filled with Your love. I need to be filled by You, God, because I'm hungry for You. I am thirsty for You, God. So whatever way we raise our hands, it should be an extension of who we are in our worship. And then we ought to worship with our knees. <laughs> I, I put this one in there and then I groaned because I thought, oh, it's a long way down there. <laughs> and, and the older I get, the longer it is. The ground used to not be that far down. <laughs> And it's not so much the getting down on my knees. <laughs> yeah, you're with me. It's the getting back up again. But you know what? In my quiet times, I find myself especially uh, on my knees before God. And I almost kind of wish we had kneeling benches. Kneeling rails. We have these benches up here, by the way. Did you know that you can use these? They're open all the time. If you are worshiping out there on Sunday morning, you feel drawn to come up here and kneel, please do so. Nobody's going to think you're strange. You're invited to do that. Whenever God invites you to do it, you do it. Don't resist the Holy Spirit. Then we're to worship with our heads. This is an interesting one. There are a couple of descriptions of Scripture. One is lifting the head to God often with the extension of your hands. We lift up our heads to Him. We look to the heavens. Sometimes it's quite the opposite. Sometimes it's the bowed head in reverence, in humility before the Lord. Then we worship with our feet. <laughs> now I'm really meddling. Standing. Let me talk about standing for just a moment. If Jesus walked in here, we would do one of two things today. We would either stand like we would when the president walked in the room, regardless of what you think of him. It is the respect for the position. We would either stand before him or we would fall flat on our faces before him, one or the other. And people ask me oftentimes, why do we stand when we sing? And I know it's hard for some of us to stand long. I realize that, and so we always give you the option. By the way, you do know you have the option to stand or sit any time during our times of worship as a congregation together. But we stand not because you sing better when you stand. That's not why we stand. We stand because where two or three are gathered in His name, He is there in the midst of us. And if He is here, then we are going to stand in His presence as we worship Him. That's why we do it. And then there's dancing. <laughs> Do I even go there? <laughs> 
because I am a horrible dancer. <laughs> but God says dance. You know what I, what I would suggest you do? Try it in your own private worship. Yeah, kind of, kind of rehearse a little bit, you know? <laughs> but it's okay for us to move, you know what I mean? And uh, we need to, if we're really in love with God, we need to notify our feet. <laughs> and then finally, I would just sum it up by saying with our bodies. With everything we are, sometimes that's falling face down, sometimes, as it says in Romans 12 and verse 1, our bodies are a living sacrifice on the altar of worship to God. We offer everything we are, everything we have, as an expression of worship. To the Lord. Now, I realize that unless you come from a church background where you were taught to practice worship in these ways, this might be new or uncomfortable for you. My prayer is that we would all grow in our understanding that God Himself desires us to be expressive with our total being as we actively participate in worship. He is out looking for people who will worship Him body, soul, and spirit. Again, it's not about our likes or dislikes or our personal preferences. This is all about Him. And in response to what the Bible teaches, I would hope that we would not only embrace such expressions of worship, but that we would actually encourage them. And yet, that we would get out of our own personal comfort zones and put them into practice in our times of worship. So I'm going to encourage you when we get together to worship even next Sunday again that you come in asking the question what can I give? What, what step could I take to get out of my personal little comfort zone here to express my worship to God in a way that I know He wants me to. Because again, it's all about Him. It's not about what you're comfortable with. It's what's comfortable to Him. Which brings us to our final main point, and that is the product from worship. Our time's nearly gone, so I'm going to go through this one rather quickly. Let me just simply say this. When we worship at Springville Naz in a God-pleasing way, when it is what He is out looking for, it will produce at least these five results. Number one, God will be glorified. God will be glorified. Psalm 50 verse 23 along with a ton of other scriptures tell us that when we worship God, He is honored and glorified. And isn't that our greatest desire? Number two, Satan will be petrified. <laughs> Satan will be petrified. The fact is that worship and warfare go hand in hand. In fact, one of the greatest weapons we have against the devil is worship. Jonah worshipped God from the belly of a fish and was spewed out on the land to be able to do God's work. Paul and Silas worshipped God at midnight in the depths of a prison and they were freed by an earthquake. God showed up. Now time doesn't allow me to 
read 2 Chronicles 20 and the story of Jehoshaphat. But I, I do want to highlight a couple of verses, verses 21 and 22. Look at them with me. Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise Him for the splendor of His holiness as they went out ahead of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for His love endures forever. By the way, that's Psalm 136. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The enemy was defeated how? By worship, yeah. I encourage you to read that whole story in in 2 Chronicles 20 on your own later. Suffice it just to say that God fought the battle for Jehoshaphat and Judah as they sang and as they praised Him. And notice that the praise singers went out ahead of the army. Not behind them, but ahead of the army. And God brought the victory. And I just want to say that our enemy, Satan, is still petrified when we worship God today. Number three, Christians will be purified. Christians will be purified. Read uh, Psalm 24 verses 3 and 4 out loud with me. Let's read this together. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. See, a worshiping person is a pure person. Why? Because as we enter God's presence in worship, there is a recognition of our own sinfulness in the presence of the holiness of God, and there is a willingness for us to abandon that sin in our lives. And as we draw closer to God, there is an all-consuming desire to be clean and pure. Worship changes you. Number four, the church will be edified. The church will be edified. Now, although this is not an end in and of itself, it's still a product from our worship. When we bless God, we in turn are blessed in return. True worship changes people. If you're not changed after worshiping, then you haven't been worshiping. If worship doesn't propel you into greater obedience, it's not worship. As we come together to worship the Lord as a church family, we are built up and we are strengthened and we are transformed. Number five, the lost will be justified. The lost will be justified. In fact, I believe that the best seeker service that a church can have is a worship-filled service. In 1 Corinthians 14, verses 23 through 25, Paul basically says, if you'll just get your worship shaped up and do it the way it ought to be done, the unchurched who come into your worship services will fall on their faces and worship God too. When those who are far from Christ observe us as Christ followers worshiping God, there is no more powerful testimony than that. So God will be glorified, Satan will be petrified, Christians will be purified, the church will be edified, the lost will be justified. That's the product from worship. And that's why we put such an emphasis on worship here at Springville Naz. Worship the missing jewel. 
Today we've taken a closer look at what the Bible teaches about worship. As the song says, there's no higher calling, no greater honor than to bow and kneel before your throne. Oh Lord, I live to worship you. Individually, may everything we do, say, and think be an expression of worship to our God. And congregationally, may our times together be everything that God desires of us in worship. May we be the kind of worshipers that God is out looking for. Well, let's wrap it up by reading Psalm 42 verses 1 and 2 out loud together. Would you read it with me? As a deer longs for a stream of cool water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for you, the living God. When can I go and worship in your presence? Isn't that how you came to church this morning? With that attitude, oh man, when do I get to go and worship God? Today's the day, yeah, all right. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for teaching us today. This is such an important topic. The fact that you are out looking for true worshipers. God, I want to be one of those. I long for you. Like a deer pants for that stream of living water. I thirst for You, O God. And I pray that all of us would desire to become the worshipers You desire us to be. In our individual lives, as well as when we come together, may we worship You in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.